Hi, my name is Nate Bloom. I'm the executive director of the Nebraska Grain Sorghum Board and the Nebraska Sorghum Producers Association. I work for farmers who are growing a crop that is a healthy option for people, animals, and the planet. As a part of my job, I get to talk with some super interesting people who are doing some super interesting things on a regular basis. I learned so much from these conversations, and I thought you might enjoy them as well. Welcome to this episode of Sergeant Sorghum and his amazing friends. Well, welcome everybody uh, to the Nexus Nebraska Collaborative Convergence of Sustainability, Entrepreneurial Development, Healthy Foods, International Aid, and Ag Education. This is an independent uh, systems dialogue as part of the Greater United Nations Food Systems Summit that'll take place in September of this year. Uh, my name is Nate Bloom. I'm the Executive Director of the Nebraska Grain Sorghum Board and the Nebraska Sorghum Producers Association. I'll serve as your host and your moderator for our panel discussion today. Um, we're pleased and really blessed to have um, 11 wonderful panelists with us today, representing a broad variety of, uh, of institutions that are already working to address a number of the 17 sustainable development goals as identified and described by the United Nations. Um, really happy to share with the world the great work that's being done here in Nebraska and Nebraska Sorghum is humbled uh, to be the host and moderator. Should you have any questions, there will be time for public questions uh, towards the, the latter part, portion of uh, the event. Go ahead and type those in the box and we will get to as many as time will allow. So with that, let's go ahead and start with our introductions. And I'd like to uh, ask Ms. Kira Everhart Valentin to kick us off. Great, thank you, Nate. Uh, my name is Kira Everhart-Valentine. I am the Sustainability Director for the United Sorghum Checkoff Program in the United States. Um, for those that are not familiar with the Sorghum Checkoff, our mission is really to expand markets and value opportunities for sorghum growers, um, as well as to ensure that our growers really benefit from an innovative and, and competitive uh, industry. You know, I think like everyone else, we, we really have been watching as the role of sustainability in agriculture has not only become more mainstream uh, throughout the production and supply chains, but has really become an increasingly urgent challenge and, and an opportunity that our industry is really working to address. Uh, more specifically, you know, some of the key initiatives that we've been working on at the Sorghum Checkoff um, have included a farm level conservation partnership with a North American wildlife um, habitat organization. And it's through this partnership that we're really focusing on supporting growers in identifying the best ways to implement conservation on their farms and really taking into uh, account the uniqueness of each farming operation in an approach that, that really ensures both the environmental sustainability of their farm as it relates to, to landscapes, as well as the economic sustainability um, in supporting their farm's longevity. We are also really been working to launch data collection initiatives because we're wanting to really evaluate Sorghum's role in sustainable agriculture and sustainable sourcing for major supply chains. We, we are really working to connect the dots 
between the growers and, and the companies in order to really better support the industry's journey towards this lower carbon future. And we're also taking a hard look on what sorghum has to offer in combating climate change and really offering a, a resilient and versatile option to both growers and, um, and end users and consumers. Um, you know, sorghum really has this, this pretty impressive capacity uh, for resource conservation. And we're really trying to get a better handle on what exactly that means across various environments, uh, different growing conditions, and really how it can best be optimized to build our soils and, and reduce our carbon footprint. So, you know, very happy to be with you all this afternoon and really looking forward to a great conversation. Thanks, Kira. Thank you, Kira. Um, and I am Ann Meese, and um, I'm a farmer here in Nebraska, um, along with my husband and his family farm here near in Elgin, Nebraska. So I come uh, as a dual role. First, on the I'm a board member on the Nebraska Soybean Board, and I'm also chairwoman of the United. United States Farmers and Ranchers in Action organization. And uh, Kira, we're really glad and proud to have the sorghum part of U.S. Farmers and Ranchers in Action and to be one of the first movers to sign on onto the decade of ag, where we encompass a lot of the same goals that you talked about with the sorghum board about sustainability and climate change. And we take the platform um, of the entire US agriculture where we represent um, many farmer rancher led organizations, about 54 farmer groups representing about 1.6 million farmers, as well as leaders along the entire food value chain with this vision at US farmers and ranchers of co-creating this sustainable food system of the future that we really need bold action. And I think uh, that's the buzzword out there, but I think there's a lot of work that is being done and a lot of companies, a lot of organizations, a lot of government is setting goals. And I think at U.S. Farmers and Ranchers in Action, we want everyone to remember that all these goals um, along the food system start with farmers and producers. And it's absolutely essential that farmers are empowered, educated, and on board with all of these things. I was honored beyond belief to be uh, the farmer representing North America at the official uh, UN Food Systems Summit that was held on May 5th. Um, that was uh, quite an honor to represent all of the farmers um, at the, one of the actual food systems uh, dialogues sponsored by the UN and, uh, and uh, I spoke at that. There was also one other farmer who was from South America that grew palm. So um, I, I think that uh, U.S. farmers and ranchers wants to be a lead, you know, organize and be a collaborator of all the, the work that's being done along these efforts to, for farmers to be contributors and um, the sustainability of the future. This solution for all. U.S. farmers and ranchers has 
put out a report called U.S. Agriculture's Opportunity to Contribute to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, where we match what U.S. agriculture can do to help reach some of these goals and challenges that have been out there. So I'm pleased to be here today and I wanna give time for um, the rest of the panel. I'll move it on. Great, thank you, Ann. Um, Vice Chancellor Bain, before you begin, I just wanna address quick. Uh, Samuel, I do see your hand raised. Um, we'll get to you. I just wanna let you know that we're asking folks to hold questions until the latter portion of, of the event. Um, that way we can get through with some of the questions that the panelists have, have asked that we address first. Um, so I'm not ignoring you. I, I totally see it, but let's come back to you if that's all right. Is that okay? All right. Uh, Vice Chancellor Bain, please. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Nate. And uh, I'm looking forward as well to be a part of this uh, esteemed panel. Uh, my name is Mike Bain, and I have the privilege of serving as the Vice Chancellor for the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute for Agriculture and Natural Resources, as well as the Vice President for the entire University of Nebraska system for Ag and Natural Resources. I, I'm representing today a perspective of, of one of the 117 public and land-grant universities in the United States and Canada, where every day we wake up thinking about uh, producing food, fuel, feed, and fiber for a growing world. And we all know, we all know about the uh, pressure that this planet's on and humanity's on going from some 7.5 billion to nearing 10 billion people. We know that we already have about uh, a billion people, 800 plus million people who live in a uh, pernicious cycle of poverty where water insecurity leads to food insecurity and regional destabilization. Um, the SDGs, Sustainability Development Goals, address those. So waking up thinking about how we harmonize production agriculture with our natural resources, how we produce that food sustainably would be the second thing we think about. And, and we can unpack what that word means, but uh, really paying attention to our, our soils, our air, our water, ensuring that the next generation of producers, farmers, ranchers, processors uh, are in a position to produce the food, fuel, feed and fiber needed. And as Ann mentioned, really mindful about the people who produce our food, thinking about the complexities of these systems, the interactions of the systems and thinking about uh, the next generation of learners, change makers, the next generation of solution sets coming from our discovery and innovative and creative works platforms. And then how do we engage smartly through uh, vehicles like uh, cooperative extension? So that's who I am. I'm looking forward to participating. Thanks for the invitation, Nate. Thank you, Vice Chancellor Bain. Dr. Field. Hello, everybody. My name's Tom Field. I'm the director of the Engler Agribusiness Entrepreneurship Program at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Um, our mission is to embolden our people on the courageous pursuit of their purpose through the art and practice of entrepreneurship. Uh, an even shorter version of that is we nurture people who build solutions. Um, in essence, we, we are uh, an entrepreneurship support system that does not try to uh, force people into any one particular solution. Um, we embrace both high and low tech uh, approaches. Um, entrepreneurship in both large scale and small scale, everything from coding to carpentry. So um, we just have the great 
privilege of really nurturing the human spirit in search of solutions that um, uh, meet some of the criteria that we're talking about today. So I'm really appreciative to have the opportunity to represent our program and our students and alums. Thank you, Dr. Field. Dr. Benson. Hi, I'm Andy Benson. I'm the director of the Nebraska Food for Health Center. And our mission is to um, unite agricultural and biomedical research through uh, the gut microbiome. And I'll explain a little bit about, about what that means. These are two areas of research that you don't typically hear in the same sentence, um, agricultural and biomedical. And the one way they do connect is that we consider our bodies as what we refer to as holobionts, meaning that we're a composition of all of our cells, all of our organs, our organ systems, and the massive population of microbes uh, that lives. And that population of microbes, referred to the microbiome, plays large roles in the health um, 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 and um, disease predisposition of not only individuals, but of our population. Um, we have the capacity now to think about developing a new generation of foods that can feed this entire system, not just the human body, but the microbes that live within it and do so in ways that reduce predisposition to diseases. Our center connects the research components necessary to do that. We're a center of innovation. We have connectivity to the agricultural research section within the Institute that Dr. Baim uh, just mentioned that he is over. Um, we also have connectivity to our other partner campuses, University of, Nebraska, University of Nebraska Medical Center, as well as University of Nebraska at Omaha. And we do discovery research in plants. We translate that through animal model systems and ultimately into human clinical studies where we create the value, um, economic value per se, in the types of foods that we're creating. I'm excited to be part of this panel and look forward to a great discussion. Thank you, Dr. Benson. Dr. McCormick. Thank you, Nate. Thank you all for being here this afternoon. Um, my name is Peter McCormick. I'm the executive director of the Doherty Water for Food Global Institute. We are a, a system institute. We, we sit across the, the four campuses of the University of Nebraska system, and we work closely with, with colleagues in, in, in all of the campuses, primarily here at uh, UNL in, in, in Lincoln. Um, our mission is, is uh, for a water and food secure world. And, and the term global is, is deliberately put into our title that we are expected to engage and do engage uh, in, in various water and food regions around the world, as well as in Nebraska and other parts of the United States. Uh, we are very much uh, uh, focused on, on achieving impact. So it's research for impact and, and outreach. And we work here in Nebraska, we work with a number of people on this call in, in the university, but also within the, uh, the water managers and farmers and, and other folks working in the, the sectors in, in the state and across the US, different partners at the national level and, and around the world uh, with uh, uh, a number of the uh, uh, universities, uh, investment, the World Bank, uh, USAIDs and, and so forth. Thank you. Very good, thank you, sir. Uh, Ms. Allen. Cindy, are you there? Sorry, Nate. No My name is Cindy Allen. I'm the Assistant Secretary of State for the State of Nebraska. 
and I work under Secretary of State Bob Evanen, who is the Chief Protocol Officer for the state of Nebraska. Uh, my position is in international trade. I serve on a um, what's called an APAC committee. It's a policy advisory committee. Uh, I initially served under President Obama, and then I served under President Trump, and now uh, President uh, Biden. We meet with the uh, USTR ambassador uh, and also the Secretary of Agriculture um, at least twice a year. And during the Trump administra administration, it was once a month um, to discuss trade and how it affects um, those who are in agriculture, namely uh, the farmers, um, as well as the industry at large. Um, I was part of the U.S. Dry Bean Council. I served as a chairman of government affairs on that council. And I also ser served as chairman of food aid for the U.S. Dry Bean Council. Um, I've been on a number of trade missions um, around the world. And um, what really uh, sparked my passion was food aid as I traveled through Africa and in many countries there and um, begin to understand uh, food aid um, in the USAID and how it relates to those populations that are displaced or internally displaced um, in refugee camps. So I've been working with the University of Nebraska and developing a more nutritious corn soy blend um, for toddlers and uh, uh, pregnant women uh, in refugee camps. Um, we're working together with the university to develop a product that is um, high in protein, but easily digested by um, babies and toddlers and also women who are currently pregnant. Uh, this is my passion. Um, I have other international interests that I'm working on um, right now, but um, it's, it's not really pertinent to today. My family and I farm um, in Ogallala we um, had grown soybean, or not soybeans, corn, wheat, and sunflowers, and also dry beans. Um, dry edible beans are high in protein. They're easily uh, storable, and they contain nutrients that will aid against stunting and wasting in small children. I'm happy to be here. This is a very distinguished panel, and uh, thank you, Nate, for inviting me. My pleasure. Thank you, Cindy. Dr. Rosati. Thank you, Nate. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Ron Rosati. I'm the Vice Chancellor for Administration and Operations at the Rwanda Institute for Conservation Agriculture, or RICA. We are a new college under construction in Rwanda. If you're not familiar with the country, we're a small landlocked country in East Africa, a second highest population density in Africa with about 12 million people. The college offers a bachelor's degree in conservation agriculture we're funded by the Howard G. Buffett Foundation, and we've been developed in partnership with the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Our mission is to produce a new generation of entrepreneurs in agriculture. We will have about 250 students when we're fully developed. All of those will be Rwandan citizens. The curriculum focuses on experiential learning, so there's much hands-on learning uh, in the classes. The campus is composed of approximately 1,300 hectares. We have smallholder farms run by students. We have larger commercial scale farms run by students and staff. Uh, we have dairy, uh, poultry broilers, layers, pigs, fruits, vegetables, row crops, forages. Uh, the campus is entirely off-grid. 
for power, potable water, and sewage treatment. A considerable portion of the farm output is consumed in the college cafeteria. And we started uh, construction almost two years ago. We're currently about 70% built and we should be finished uh, with construction in November. And it's a real pleasure of mine to be with you today. Thank you, Dr. Rosati. Glad to hear construction is moving along. Very good. Mr. Good morning, or good afternoon, sorry. Uh, Seth Turner, uh, founder, principal of 5A. Uh, we are a private uh, company. Uh, we are in the process of uh, becoming a certified B Corp, social uh, benefits corp. Um, we uh, work with a lot of organizations like those uh, represented here today. Our purpose is to uh, add capacity to organizations doing good in the world, uh, specifically those uh, who are a lot, well, a lot of them who are working in uh, uh, making sure there's a food security. Uh, so we work with uh, public agencies, uh, NGOs, and uh, corporations in helping them design and execute on large scale education initiatives or training efforts. So um, one area in particular that I work with a lot is in the education space, both informal and formal education, uh, everything from uh, pre-K all the way up through um, uh, uh, the uh, collegiate level. So supporting organizations. So excited to uh, offer the perspective of working with uh, lots of organizations uh, in this area. Thanks for uh, allowing me to be part of it, Nate. Of course. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. Dr. Van Wormer. Hi, everyone. Thanks for the invitation to join. My name is Liz Van Wormer. I am a faculty member in the School of Veterinary Medicine and the School of Natural Resources at UNL. Um, so I work with a lot of people on the call directly. And I also coordinate the Nebraska One Health program. And One Health is based on the concept that the health of people and domestic animals and wildlife and plants and ecosystems are intricately connected. And it's an approach that brings together from people, people from very diverse backgrounds and perspectives to try to address really complex challenges at the interface of those groups. So we know that a lot of issues affect all of us, right? They affect the people who are in agricultural systems, the food we eat, they affect the domestic animals that we share our environments with, as well as the wildlife. And so by working with partners inside and outside of the university, we have a much better chance of developing really creative solutions to some of those complex health challenges. So some of those challenges in Nebraska that people have identified in our group are antimicrobial resistance, um, water quality and water quantity, as well as zoonotic disease, disease shared by people and animals, especially vector-borne diseases are a big concern here. And then a big area of food security and sustainable livelihoods, which ties into today's conversation. So I'll post our, um, our website in the chat box as well, but um, thank you to all. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Very good, thank you. Um, and Ms. Balaji. Uh, now, Ms. Balaji, just for the record, uh, is one of our Nebraska adjacent partners, but she's doing such great work up in Canada that I wanted to make sure that she was included in this panel. So Ms. Balaji, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Nate, for the invitation. I am really glad and honored to be in such great company. Uh, my name is Sujala. I am a food scientist and an engineer turned entrepreneur. I originally grew up in India eating a lot of millets and sorghum and uh, eventually moved to Canada and found myself working in the food industry for over 15 years. 
uh, doing R&D project commercialization for large scale manufacturing, including dairy. Uh, did that role well for uh, almost a decade or longer. And eventually uh, I, I came across the uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals. So which is another reason I'm excited to be here today is my entrepreneurial journey actually started in 2015 when the UN proposed the 17 goals. It was that moment when I was looking at these different goals and realized how many of those are interrelated and can be addressed through food and agriculture. That blew my mind and having this experience and education in the industry uh, made me feel like I have a responsibility to be part of this change in creating solutions for these goals. And uh, since then, I've been fortunate to be an ambassador for SDG Zero Hunger by uh, participation through some initiatives stemming from the UN. And uh, more recently, I am the CEO of RainFed Foods. At RainFed Foods, we create the most delicious and nutritious dairy-free products using climate resilient, sustainable crops like millets and sorghum. Uh, that's what we're currently doing, but um, I'm happy to chat more and share more about our work as the conversation progresses. Nice right. to meet you all. Thanks for the invite again, Nate. Very good. And again, thank you to all of our panelists for, uh, for sharing their, their time and their talents uh, with us here. So um, I'm going to share just really quick one time before we jump into the questions. Um, can you all see our website up there now on your screen? Okay. So for those at home who, if you can't uh, view the entire um, entire conversation or would like to go back and view it again, um, our website is nebraskasorghum.org. And if you'll go to the Sorghum Army Outpost, you'll see right under here, Nexus Nebraska. And that's where this video will be housed. It'll also be housed um, in two different segments on our podcast page, Sergeant Sorghum and his amazing friends. So. With that, let me go ahead and stop share and I'll pull up questions. I believe we've had several conversations um, already in the chat box um, and we will get to any questions, but again, um, let's try to save those for, uh, for after uh, these, the other questions are addressed. So, all right, you guys up for uh, some 20 questions here? Yes, all right, great. Let's start with this one. And again, um, this, these questions are generally aimed at everyone. If you would like to answer, go ahead and raise your hand and we'll call on you as we're able. Uh, so first question, how critical is the role of entrepreneurship in developing effective food systems? I feel like I have an obligation to jump in as an entrepreneur. Uh, <laughs> So I'll, I'll, take a, I'll take a first uh, go. Um, personally, I might be biased because I'm an entrepreneur, but it, I mean, entrepreneurship can bring a solution, can bring a different approach to any problem, for, for an example, whether it is, uh, whether it's redefining some of the problems that already exist to create new solutions or create new perspectives to address the solutions. So in that angle, I feel like entrepreneurs are also at an advantage in just thinking, using, uh, using different different perspectives that may not be part of 
what was involved in those problems when they were created. So again, I'm not saying anything new. I'm just pointing out that uh, entrepreneurship is really, really key in creating solutions for some of the challenges that exist in the modern day. Uh, one, it allows speed and innovation, uh, speed and speed of execution and innovation uh, to to complex problems by breaking them down into addressable bite-sized solutions. Excellent, thank you. Would anyone else like to address that question? Yes, go ahead. Uh, looks like Tom Field has hand up and then Ann and Cindy will go in that order if that's all right. Well, that's a great first answer and um, hearing direct from an entrepreneur is the key to, uh, to, to getting a lot of these solutions actually um, put together. I, I, I think the key is to, is to recognize that entrepreneurship is really about um, tackling questions from market perspectives using local talent who have their feet on the ground and understand conditions uh, where they work, live, play, uh, and live out their lives. So when we think about entrepreneurship, it's the key is to keep as much of the solution as local as possible, in my opinion. And I think that's the power of entrepreneurship because the solution that I work out in a market, perhaps in um, Omaha, may be an absolutely horrible choice for a market in um, Christchurch, New Zealand, um, or wherever. So entrepreneurship, I think that the, the great thing about it is it invites ordinary people into solving problems that affect them directly. And that's a really powerful approach. And oftentimes the key is to keep regulation out of the way of entrepreneurs who are actually trying to solve problems at the local level. Um, and I think that's a really key element if you're trying to nurture entrepreneurship is you, you cannot regulate entrepreneurship into being. Very good, thank you. Cindy? Um, there's, a, there's a couple of um, examples that I saw in Africa as far as entrepreneurship and, and also the need uh, for entrepreneurship in some of the countries. Um, one need that I, that I really think is critical to food security is that there are not a lot of um, commercial uh, stores, you know, grocery stores. Um, I think that um, because of that, you know, your availability of food into the market is, is probably more in the urban areas and, and you have to go quite a ways um, walking or riding a bike or even a motorcycle for access. Um, so I think that there's, there's a critical need for commercial grocery stores. Um, the, other, the other form of entrepreneurship that I saw in one country, I believe it was Ethiopia, um, a group of investors uh, came together and uh, they purchased the commodities uh, from, from producers uh, in the area. Uh, they have storage for those commodities, but they hire women uh, to come in and uh, sort through the commodities, you know, take out the, the, the trash such as, you know, little pebbles or dirt or, you know, and, and sort through it. And um, when it comes into the, what we call a co-op, um, but at the same time, they can bring their children and they have a cafeteria for, for the women to eat in. They have a cafeteria for the children, but they also have a school for the children to attend school um, while the mothers are at work. 
And um, I think that is a tremendous form of entrepreneurship on the part of this group of investors into uh, that country that is, is not there. I think they answered a, a gap. And I think entrepreneurs see those gaps and, and they have a tendency to answer those gaps. Another gap that I saw was that there's a, there's a big gap between what a farmer gets for what he what he earns for his crop and what it is actually sold for because there isn't any um, exchange you know we have a commodity exchange and ethiopia another group of investors went to new york they um, observed our commodity their stock exchange they duplicated that in ethiopia so that the producer has a way of knowing the value of his of his commodity before he sells it and then he can uh, sell it to the distributor or co-op um, at that price rather than uh, they are taken advantage of and then end up you know they, they can't sustain the risk of a of a low price for their commodity so those are some local answers um, that I've witnessed uh, in different countries that entrepreneurship has really um, empowered the people and also um, enrich the communities that the entrepreneurs have established themselves in. Thank you very much. Uh, Cindy. Yes. I think you met Anne. <laughs> That's fine. I, I will just <laughs> jump in there. Um, you know, I will just add briefly that when we look at these large world goals, I just want to reiterate what Tom said. I couldn't agree more. He took the words out of my, my mouth that solutions have to be done locally. And I want us all to remember that farmers are the original entrepreneurs. We've been innovators since the beginning of time and we are constantly applying solutions to our own land, our own grazeland, our own livestock, on what works on with our climate, our soil type, are those. So um, we need incentives and education and not mandates. Mandates and control will suppressed and and um, not allow that entrepreneur spirit to further. That's all I wanted to say. Okay, very good. And I think I saw, thank you so much. I think I saw Dr. Rosati has a hand up as well. This question. Oh, thanks, Nate. I'd just like to comment that I, I would believe entrepreneurship is critical. I think uh, competition between entrepreneurs uh, increases production efficiency. And that results in two outcomes. One of them is uh, lower food prices. Uh, we learn we learn how to be more efficient, and as a result, we learn how to produce at lower cost, and some of those savings are passed on to consumers. And at the same time, because of higher efficiencies, um, our entrepreneurs make more profit, and both of those things are good. A profitability for the farmer and lower food prices for the consumer, and those are a result of competition from entrepreneurs. So I think it's a critical component of our food system. Awesome, thank you. Um, I want to uh, to throw this actually at a member of the audience who, and I apologize in advance, Dr. Brink, I should have included you on this panel, but since I see that you're here, if you feel uh, prepared to answer any of these questions, please raise your hand, we'd love to have you on. Dr. Brink uh, is with Concordia University in Seward, Nebraska, and is another one of our great partners actually when we work on entrepreneurship. Uh, and encouraging entrepreneurs here in the state. So Den Dennis Brink, thank you so much. And my apologies for not getting you on the panel in the first place, but you're welcome to join in. 
All right, so let's go ahead and go to the next question here, still on the topic of entrepreneurship. Is entrepreneurship uh, necessarily tied to high-tech solutions? I'll jump in there, Nate, this is Mike Bain. Uh, it said unequivocally, the answer is no. But uh, as we think about uh, from a land grant perspective where we are uh, blessed in so many ways to um, innovate and to, to um, bring those innovations in contact with producers uh, here in North America, uh, we have a social responsibility to value uh, engineer those solutions that then uh, add value to uh, producers, uh, both large and small scale around the, around the world. And so while I think um, there's great innovations that take place in local communities worldwide, uh, there is a there is a linkage between um, uh, high speed uh, technologically uh, bent solution sets and uh, moving those around the world. Very good, thank you, Vice Chancellor. Anyone else would like to answer that question? Oh yeah, sorry, Dr. Field. I think it's a, a an, an interesting question that that maybe goes back even beyond uh, the question of high-tech versus not high-tech. It's really a question more about can we marry um, different mindsets and, and put different approaches, different sets of eyes on the same problem. One of the mistakes that's oftentimes made with in, in, in the world of entrepreneurship is that there's really poor effort into reaping the benefit of the wisdom of those who've actually been on the problem for a period of time. Um, you know, I can, I can bring a solution to a group of people because I just think it's just the best idea I've had since, uh, you know, whatever uh, um, beer that's darker than average. Um, and I, I think, man, that's what a great idea. And then I get actually, and I, I meet with those who actually have the wisdom of implementing the solution. And I figure out they actually have a different problem than I thought they had. And so I think um, this, the, the key to this is to break down the barriers, to get rid of those barriers that silo either entrepreneurs as some sort of, you know, uh, new age superman, superwoman sort of approach versus, oh, well, they're just a farmer. And, and what I've learned is, is if we can get young entrepreneurs, whether they have any ag background or not, doesn't matter. And we can get the wisdom of, of those who've had their feet on the ground and their hands in the soil for a long period of time. We put those two things together, that's when the magic happens. So I think a lot of it is, is much to Mike's point is how do we marry those things? And, and, and one thing that ag has to do, and this may speak, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just put it to my own bias, North American ag, oftentimes we have this tendency to sort of hold new ideas at arm's length. Um, and I think as, a, as, a, as an industry and as, as a culture, we've got to do a better job of embracing new ideas, new approaches, new concepts, and actually initiate conversations with those who maybe aren't particularly familiar to us, but might actually bring that little bit of, of magic um, dust that, that gets us to the solution. Thanks. Very good. Thank you, Dr. Field. Sujala, you have your hand raised. I, I just want to add to uh, what Tom just said. I agree completely with him. I guess uh, entrepreneurship doesn't have to be high-tech or low-tech. It's not really a question about uh, an issue of technology. I think it's a question of what problems are we solving? 
using entrepreneurship as a vehicle. And problems could be, uh, could involve simple solutions or could involve uh, high-tech solutions. Uh, for example, what we're doing at RainFed, we're creating products that replicate dairy. So that could be seen as a high-tech solution, but Nate, I wanna quote one of your examples here. Uh, I know you're, uh, you're an advocate of sorghum and one of the ideas you've been proposing is creating a frozen uh, cooked sorghum product as a nutritional alternative to, to side, as a side for a meal. So it's a very simple solution, but that could be a game-changing solution if adopted and done well. So there are both sides to the coin, but it's really like, what problem is it that we're trying to solve and how complex it need, needs to be? So that's my two cents. Very good. And thank you for making me blush, Sujala. <laughs> um, all right. Well, this next question, is there anyone else, first of all, who wants to address this question? I don't see any other hands up. Um, but again, thank you for the kind words, uh, Sujala. Uh, this next question, I think, has already been a little bit of addressed, uh, but let's, let's dive in a little bit further. Um, what are the keys to growing entrepreneurship in both formal education and on-the-ground settings? Dr. Rosati, I saw your hand first. Sujala, is your hand still up or? Sorry, okay, Dr. Rosati. Sure, Rika, of course, this is one of the things we work on. And uh, so some of, the, some of the things that work for us, of course, is a focus on uh, experiential learning, entrepreneurship in the classroom, tangible skills development uh, in, in our classes with our students. Uh, plenty of interaction with uh, the private sector, successful private sector uh, partners, industry partners coming to campus, students visiting their facilities, um, field-based learning facilities. So students, uh, for example, run the farms here on campus. Uh, they run them as businesses. They sell their produce to the local cafeteria. They run, they develop business plans. They look at profitability. They change pro production parameters from one semester to the next to increase profitability. All of those things are, are good techniques for growing uh, entrepreneurship. Okay, very good. Thank you. Just a, just a few examples. Dr. Benson. I was just going to mention, thanks, uh, that entrepreneurship looks different in different places. And from, from the academic perspective in, in an institution of higher education, you have a wide range of non-entrepreneurship to those who can think entrepreneurially among the faculty. And so moving ideas along the process from, from very early stage discovery of fundamental principles to ways in which those principles can be applied to specific problems, that's, that's quite a spectrum that we deal with here. And so trying to, to get people to work together as teams so that you cover that spectrum that Tom sort of mentioned from, from the, the people that can, can identify and unearth things to the people that, that uh, know how these applications may, uh, may be very useful and how value can be created. Um, that, that's a, it is a challenge um, in, in an institution, in, in an educational institution. Very good, thank you. Uh, Dr. Field, and uh, again, doc, Dr. Brink, you're also invited to be a part of this discussion if you'd like, if you feel uh, prepared to do so. Uh, but Dr. Field, I see you've got your hand up. Yeah, I want to I just um, 
throw the ball to two people because I just want to see what they have to say because I think you'll have unique perspectives on this. I'd like to hear what Seth and Kira have to say about that because they work with people actually trying to execute entrepreneurship in a, in a really meaningful way on the ground. And I think that that, that sort of private sector world is, is an important um, voice in this, in this conversation. So um, I'm going to throw Seth, who I know well, under the bus. And Kira, uh, now I owe you a beer because I'm about to throw you under the bus. <laughs> well, Seth, you're up. <laughs> uh, well, thanks, Dr. Field. Uh, I'll speak more to the on-the-ground than the uh, formal education piece. I know in the projects we've worked with, with organizations, uh, either trying to work with youth or, um, uh, and again, those I would consider like third to fifth grade or those uh, high school or college age, that number one challenge um, that they have discovered in doing the work isn't that uh, students don't know what an entrepreneur is, it's that they don't ever consider themselves as being capable of being one. And so the challenge isn't necessarily one of uh, knowledge, it's a challenge of what do they believe about themselves. Um, and uh, in some cases, what is the value of being an entrepreneur? Uh, because that word uh, has a lot of connotation and depending on the community and the context of which students, uh, their perspective of the world, uh, some see entrepreneurs as uh, kind of uh, not even being something you'd want to be um, because they're perceived as uh, those who take advantage of, of uh, for, for, you know, to build great wealth. And they, you know, uh, meanwhile, they stop by the mom and pop grocery store or go down to the bar and have a, you know, a, a meal at, and they don't, they don't see those people as entrepreneurs. Uh, so part of it is uh, helping students understand the meaning and the, the value, the purpose, the, the greater good purpose of being an entrepreneur in the world. And then the second challenge is often um, helping them see themselves in that role how the aptitudes that they already have can help them be successful. That it's, I think you said it before, Dr. Peel, it's not a superpower. Um, it's not something that a few people are gifted with and others are not. So those, I know in the work that we've done with clients, um, it's, it's not always about uh, the, the teaching them the what of entrepreneurship. It's the kind of helping students see themselves in doing that work and connecting to the why it's important, so. Thanks, Seth. Kira, you're on the hook. Yeah, no, I would, I would echo, um, you know, one of the points that Seth just made. I think sometimes the the term entrepreneur, uh, especially when you kind of move into the agricultural industry, I'm, I'm not sure that that a lot of um, farmers or, or producers really see themselves as entrepreneurs. But in fact, I would argue that many of them are. Um, you know. Some of, you know, when I think about what are some of the, the challenges and how do you encourage entrepreneurship in the agricultural industry, um, you know, the, the removal of bottlenecks or the support of growers in navigating those bottlenecks, I think, is a really important one. So, for example, if you think about um, a grower that wants to uh, grow perhaps more of a high value product. Um, so kind of going back to the example that was brought up earlier, Nate, you know, um, a food grade sorghum that is specifically for, um, you know, human consumption and, and this, this higher value um, end product. For 
a grower that is in Nebraska that has decided they want to, to go down that road, there are, you know, a number of things that that individual needs to go through in order to be able to connect into an available market. So part of it is market creation all the way on the other end, right? So helping to, um, you know, educate, encourage, promote uh, among the companies that would take up that sorghum and apply it and, and you know, create, do that product development process where they would, you know, pull the need for that, that, that product. But also then at the same time, there's the component of helping that grower then to identify um, what are all of the, the necessary uh, boxes that need to be checked in order to successfully produce that product and then also be that push. So really when you think about it kind of on the agricultural side, you have sometimes such a long and complex supply chain there can be a number of, of just kind of locks in the middle that can really be a challenge from an entrepreneurial standpoint. And so, you know, the more that we can um, involve and engage the, the, the private industry in, at various levels of that, uh, whether that be, you know, facilitating conversations between producers and, and um, you know, other end users farther down the chain, um, helping to support ways uh, in which uh, help support product development and, and new applications of a product. You know, those are the types of things that can really begin to allow that individual producer or perhaps a group of producers that want to go after something um, and, and develop that, that new business to begin to have success in that. But you know, it, it really is this question of assisting them in in moving through those bottlenecks and opening up those opportunities. So it becomes this kind of bi-directional process, right? The push and the pull um, in order to help facilitate those markets. And if I can just jump onto that as well, just to add another point, um, you know, domestic markets development in particular for value-added markets in the United States, that's our number one priority and has been for some time at, at the Nebraska Grain Sorghum Board. Um, we're working really hard to attract um, existing processors to consider uh, moving operations or uh, adding operations in Nebraska in places that are proximate to the production of the crop. And in so doing, decreasing their supply lines, their carbon footprints, um, increasing their avail availability actually for logistics to get, uh, to get out to stores. Um, we're about two days by truck from anywhere in the continental U.S. where we're at. Um, and then also, you know, that creates jobs in rural communities and increases on farm revenues. So that's something we're really focused on. Uh, so if anybody on the call is a, a processor or an entrepreneur, just let me tell you that Nebraska is open for business. We work very closely with the Nebraska Department of Economic Development and a lot of the local economic developers. Um, we can help to get you here. The other thing that we do is we do have a catalyst program, which is our entrepreneurial uh, training program, so to speak. Um, if many, uh, many of the members on this call of this panel uh, are actually partners in that program as well, um, including several University of Nebraska institutions and Concordia University. Um, and we'll be looking forward to having our second Catalyst um, program here in the fall, uh, working with uh, some even, even more partners there. So keep an eye on our website for that. Um, Cindy, I'll get to you, but before I do, Samuel, you've been very patient. And, you know, again, I'd, I'd like to take questions at the end, um, but you've, because you've been so patient, I'll go ahead and call on you, Samuel, if you'd like to address this, this question. But you're on mute, so we can't hear you. Sorry, Samuel, you're muted. Can we come back to you? I can't, I can't hear you. All right, Cindy, go ahead. 
Okay. Uh, um, I was just thinking about Anne's comment that uh, all farmers are really entrepreneurs, and um, we we pass our we pass our trade down from one generation to the next, and and we grow entrepreneurship from the age of three years old up um, as far as on the farm. And I I noticed that in in underdeveloped and developing countries, this isn't always the case. So the key to growing entrepreneurship as far as in agriculture in some of those countries are those extensions, um, extension agents, uh, training extension agents to go out into the communities um, to assist in training um, in the area of agriculture and, and growing commodities. And I think this is very invaluable in developing entrepreneurship in some of the other countries that are underdeveloped and uh, so that they're able to pass that down uh, to the next, to the second, and third, and fourth generation, similar to what we do because we grow an abundance of food, uh, perhaps just for that very reason that we do stay on the family farm. Very good, thank you, Cindy. Samuel, I'm, I'm willing to give you another shot here. Can you get off mute? We'd love to have your question. You'll have to unmute though. Samuel, I'm sorry, we can't, we can't hear you. Dr. Rosati. Thanks, Nate. Uh, jumping back to a key for growing entrepreneurship in formal educational settings. One of the things that we've run across is the need uh, to provide in-service training for, for our faculty and the basic skills of entrepreneurship. We've run we hire, we might hire a faculty member who's an expert in, in dairy science, but they they may not have had the training in entrepreneurship. They not have had training. Uh, so running a business might be, might be a little different. Might be. Sounds like we have Samuel now, so I'll let him uh, okay, talk here and let him speak. Okay, Samuel, go ahead. Okay, Samuel. Sorry, your connection's not very good, Samuel. Samuel, go ahead. Okay. Can yep, go ahead. Oh, okay. Okay. I you know. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, me. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, so much for opportunity to me. I'm someone from South Africa. I like program that is good and basically, you know, it's all of the fun. Okay, natural resources. Samuel, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, we're having connection issues there. I tell you what, can you type your question in the chat and I'll I'll read it? Would that be okay? So we're having a hard time hearing. Okay. Please go on and I'll I'll Samuel, I'll read your question once you type it in, okay? Once you type it in, okay. All right, Dr. Rosati, go ahead. Well, I, I, may, I may have made the point simply that a key is providing training for our faculty in entrepreneurship skills. So we, we're an undergraduate institution. We bring in PhDs that are, tend to be science-based, uh, learned research skills in their PhD programs, um, but, but managing a profitable swine operation or a layer operation is a little bit different than um, <clears throat> studying the research of, of uh, that technology. So uh, we found that it's important to uh, provide in-service training for our educators on 
um, running profitable businesses and helping our students do so. Very good. Thank you, Dr. Rosati. Cindy, did you have another point? Your hand is still raised. No, sorry. I'll put it down. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, let's shift, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, I appreciate the conversation around entrepreneurialism for sure. But let's start talking about food just a little bit, okay? And I think um, this is also an entrepreneur question, though, too. How can we provide healthy and inexpensive food solutions to global populations? It's a big question that I think is at the heart of a lot of what we're talking about today. How can we provide healthy and inexpensive food solutions to global populations? Oh boy, not everybody at once. Cindy, you've got your hand up okay. again. <laughs> All right, I'll take it. <laughs> um, I think that again, you know, it all works together with education and entrepreneurship. And also, um, a lot of a lot of countries developing and underdeveloped uh, don't have access to seed. Um, they they don't have access to irrigation and water, um, uh, and all of those are are part of growing healthy and expensive food so that you can increase your yields um, in the field. So I think that. Um, working together with some of the PBOs and NGOs um, can really assist in, in helping in this area. The other, the other thing on food aid, I've noticed that it's, it's sometimes difficult to, um, to ship uh, in-kind food aid um, because of the shipping cost. So it's, a, um, it's an expensive transportation cost that kind of um, increases the price of, of food from the U.S. exported into other countries. Um, if there is a way to reduce some of that cost, um, I think that would also be beneficial as well. But um, providing, providing education, uh, seed, microloans, um, and, uh, and also uh, showing, showing um, emerging markets and underdeveloped countries that uh, we are willing to share our technology in, in agriculture that they may not be as advanced as we are um, also really helps to uh, provide healthy and expensive foods to uh, global populations. Thank you, Cindy. 